Tom Bodette from Motel 6 with a word for business travelers. Seems business has its own language these days, full of buzzwords like buzzword or net-net. And after a day spent whiteboarding a matrix of action items and deliverables, it's nice to know you can always outsource your accommodation needs to the nearest Motel 6. You'll get a clean, comfortable room for the lowest price, net-net, of any national chain, plus data ports and free local calls in case you tabled your discussion and need to reconvene offline. So you can think of Motel 6 as your total business travel solution provider, vis-a-vis cost-effective lodging alternatives for Q1 through Q4, I think. Just call 1-800-4-MOTEL-6 or visit motel6.com. I'm Tom Bodette for Motel 6, and we'll maintain the lighting device in its current state of illumination for you. Motel 6 and a core hotel. World Talk Radio. Bringing the world to you. To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or, if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068. Talking today with Michael Schaefer, author of Just What War Is, Civil War Writings of DeForest and Bierce. We're talking thus about two of the great writers of the Civil War. And in our first section, talked a little bit about the background, the uh, era of realism in American literature. And we're just getting into a discussion of uh, DeForest's writing. Now, uh, Mike, you were saying that, that DeForest as with the other realists, objected to authors who portrayed life in in romantic terms and in false terms. And he was determined to write about war in a a realistic way. Uh, How does he go about doing that? Well, one thing that's interesting is the the novel that I think is his best novel, and and most critics agree with me, Miss Ravenel's Conversion from Secession to Loyalty. The novel's better than the title. Uh, They don't write titles like that anymore, do they? No. Comes out in 1867, very, you know, just two or three years after DeForest has been through this. What's interesting to me, and I'm sure you and other guests have talked about this, and comes across in the literature of, of other wars, is usually how long it takes for somebody to write with clarity and detachment about their experiences. You know, you think about the, the great World War I novels, uh, Farewell to Arms, All Quiet on the Western Front, things like that are, are 10 years or more 
after the events. The Tim O'Brien and other people writing about Vietnam are 10 years or so after the, the events. DeForest tends to get it quite effectively just a couple of years removed from the, from the trauma. That is a, an interesting story. Let, let me um, ask you a question regarding that without getting us too far off track. Paul uh, Fussell in his, his mm-hmm. book on First World War literature that right. uh, uh, everyone ought to read sometime. Yeah, I agree. He makes a point that the soldier, uh, the writer, needs to be needs to have an imagination, needs to be able to imaginatively project himself or herself into others' minds to to be an effective writer. You can't just uh, put out your own view. The soldier, in contrast, needs to restrict and uh, contract his imagination uh, to avoid going insane. If, if you just imagine what could happen the next day or the next hour, yeah, uh, you have to. The only way veterans survive, we, we learn from their writing, uh, survive mentally, is by by pulling into themselves. Yeah living in the moment. And so you have a real contradiction between the tools of the writer and the tools of the author. Uh, DeForest seems to overcome that, as you say, in just a year or two. Yeah. Well, it, that's a, an excellent point and an interesting point related to DeForest because one of the things he talks about, and I, he, he depicts this in Miss Ravenel, but I think he, he's more explicit about it in some of his critical writings about about war writing, that this that this is exactly what happens to the soldier, that the experience of combat, if you're going to survive it, is to focus on the here and now, whether you know whether you have to do that with a conscious effort or whether it happens uh, just kind of beyond your will, that you just collapse into the moment. So I mean that that's one of the things he gets right. It seems to me, you know, related uh, that in doing this book, I, I read, uh, you know, a great deal of history and a great deal of psychology about uh, analyzing ex- the experience in combat. And you know, what you're saying tracks with everything I've read. So, so he's able, uh, DeForest is able to do this. He writes, um, well, he writes the novel, which, and, and both the novel and uh, the memoir, Volunteers' Adventures. Are there connections between the two? The yeah, ones? there are. Uh, some of the same uh, engagements that DeForest himself was involved in, the, the campaign in Louisiana, Nathaniel Banks' campaign, and the uh, the siege of Port Hudson during Grant's Vicksburg campaign. I mean, the, uh, the Army around Port Hudson ended up not having to storm Port Hudson because Vicksburg fell and, and Port Hudson didn't matter anymore. But that's a campaign that DeForest went through that he also has his his protagonist in Miss Ravenel, Captain Colburn, go through. So he so he is literally writing about something he knows about. He describes that one action, I think it must be in the Red River campaign, the Banks campaign, um, at I'm not trying to say it, Labadeville. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is one of the little gems of Civil War writing, where he, he takes this very small engagement, maybe one brigade on each side, and describes it in a way that, at least for me, I can actually picture uh, how on the map this must have looked, how uh, even uh, in person this must have looked, uh, to an extent that most writers don't get. Yeah, that I, that seems to me. I, I share your your esteem for that piece. In fact, I've been hoping for some years 
that it would sort of find its way into anthologies of American lit- literature as an example of realistic writing. A few years ago, one of the editors of the Norton, in writing about DeForest, the Norton Anthology of American Lit, said, well, we hope to make room for the first time under fire, this piece we're talking about, in, in a future edition of the Norton. But so far it hasn't happened. But it's, no. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Uh, no, no, uh, go ahead and finish, please. The, the, well, I mean, I was going to confirm what you were saying, that his, his skill there at showing you what he saw at the time and yet still showing you how the engagement developed is, is tremendously well done. I wonder, do you suppose it doesn't appear in anthologies because, because it's too warlike? I think that's possible. I think also, though, things are turning for for some years in in American literary criticism, the, the idea of talking about periods that were, you know, denoted romanticism, realism, naturalism, modernism, so on, was regarded as too limiting and too restricting and excluding too many authors who didn't match up to the particular criteria of those movements. That's kind of moved back in the other direction in, in recent years. People are once again accepting that, that kind of periodization? Yeah, yeah, huh. to, to, to a greater extent. I mean, uh, just a couple of years ago, there was a, a good new anthology of American realist fiction uh, edited by a, a very good teacher and critic in Missouri, at the University of Missouri, Tom Quirk, that it seemed to me kind of brings back the idea of, of, of grouping things by period, by, by literary movement. Without getting too far afield, is, is the rejection of that periodization part of the, the postmodern turn? Uh, yeah, yeah, to an extent, it it is. I did to a great extent. In fact, I think that you know this is that these terms are too simplistic as ways of of describing literature, and also going back to something I said earlier that that if they're looked at, if they're considered too rigidly, it excludes too many other kinds of, of writing. For, you know, for instance, uh, science fiction, that uh, fantasy, things like that. One of the things that Tom Quirk did in his anthology is point out something that I said earlier. I probably originally got it from, from his introduction, that realism embraces lots of different kinds of writing unified just around the idea that the goal is to remove illusions from the reader. And so bringing us back to DeForest, his goal is to remove the reader's illusions as to what war is like. Yeah. I was very interested to read your description of his... Uh, uh, he, he takes a very instrumental approach toward war writing. It's it's very much meant to educate the reader. Yeah. Uh, what is How is it going to help a reader to read a war story in terms of making them a better soldier? Well... Partly, and where DeForest is clearest about this is in an essay, it's, it's after Miss Ravenel's conversion, an essay he wrote in 1879 for the Atlantic Monthly called Our Military Past and Future, in which he starts out by saying, look, the reality of the world is, you know, very kind of 19th century or Victorian, late Victorian Darwinian view, I guess we would say, if that cover enough ground, uh, there are going to be more wars. Our young men are going to be fighting wars again. And they, their, their resources for understanding what's going to happen to them are going to be historical writing and fictional writing about war. 
and we we are doing them a great disservice if we don't give them the straight story about what they're going to experience. So his so he expects that this will actually make people when, when they experience their first time under fire to use his his story title uh if they've read his story they will have some clue what to expect. Yeah. And and yet uh you quote a letter he writes to to Howells in which he admits he leaves out of his writing the real horror of war. Yeah, oh the the letter yeah that he writes after he's first read Tolstoy's War and Peace. Well, how do how do you square there? How does he square that? I'm being realistic. I'm I'm training young men to here's what war is like, but I'm not really telling you the whole story. Yeah, well, I, I that letter. I, I think you can read a couple of different ways. I I think one way to understand it is that he's just recognizing that Tolstoy is the superior artist. That you know he's saying. I did the best I could with my literary abilities, but this guy has captured it more effectively than I have. But then something interesting that he says in that letter, uh, I don't have it right in front of me. I could maybe flip around to it in the, in the book. But he says, I, I think, let me see if I can get it right. I told all I could, but what I left out was the extreme horror of war and the horror with which even the bravest man struggles through it. And I didn't, I didn't dwell on that as much as I could have, because if I had, readers would think I was a coward, and so I couldn't know what it was to be a brave man. That, you know, I couldn't write, I wouldn't have been able to write realistically about how to be brave under fire. So, so he is concerned, readers, if he tells the reader just how terrifying war is and just how hor- horrible the sights are, that the reader will take him for a coward for for admitting this fear. Yeah, that's what he says in this letter. I think that's that's one of the dimensions of that letter. Yeah. Although he does say it, as I'm trying to recall in his writing, he does say that that you do feel fear, but you master it. Yeah. Uh, it's not an absence of fear. No, no. That that's one of the things he wants to be very clear about in his war writing. That he says in that article in the Atlantic Monthly, you get under fire and you are going to be afraid. If 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 you are expecting that you are that you won't feel fear, then you're in trouble. I mean, if you go into battle expecting that that you will not feel fear, that you shouldn't feel fear, then you're in a lot of trouble. You're going to crack. Well, this is a good transition point then to uh, bring up your other author, Ambrose Bierce, because he takes a very different approach to that. But what, let, let's introduce uh, Bierce a little bit. He writes a historical story. Well, well, let's start with his Civil War career. What uh, he, he saw the war firsthand. What, how did that go for him? Yeah, it well, it went very well in a lot of ways. He, you know, he's born in 1842. He's only 19 when the war begins. Unlike DeForest, who's 35, and he, you know, he doesn't have a literary career going already. He's he's already interested, I think, in in the idea of becoming a writer. But he he rises through the ranks to lieutenant, and then. I think, if I'm remembering, he's mustered out as a major, served very effectively with uh, Sherman, uh, well, with Grant and Sherman, though he didn't like those guys at all. In fact, we could get into that later. He didn't like Grant and Sherman at all. But some people, he became uh, uh, 
a, a military surveyor, was one of the ones who was responsible for you know creating the maps that the general officers were going to use in in placing their troops on the battlefield, and by every account was very well thought of for doing that, was very personally courageous. Uh, some of his biographers want to argue that he essentially won the Battle of Missionary Ridge. I think that's a, an exaggeration. But he was also very badly wounded around that time and never went back to active service d during the war. So he fights in the Western Theater. He's in uh, Buell's Army of the Ohio. He's at yeah. Shiloh. He's at as you point at Missionary Ridge, he's at Chickamauga. Uh, he's in the campaign towards Atlanta. Yeah, I believe it's Kennesaw Mountain that he that he sustains his wound, if I'm remembering correctly. I, I think that is right. So he he has he has, sees a lot of the war, certainly. Yeah. Um, his uh, his approach is certainly different. Uh, I suppose. And I've got your a copy of your book here, and I'm going to share the the uh, description that that uh, most of our listeners will have come across at some point of the uh, the wounded man he meets uh, at Shiloh. Ah, uh, oh yeah, uh, and and it's it's not pleasant, but we can hardly escape uh, this passage if we're going to talk about Ambrose Bierce. Absolutely. Uh, he says, "I encountered a federal sergeant, variously hurt." who had been a fine giant in his time. He lay face upward, taking in his breath in convulsive, rattling snorts, and blowing it out in sputters of froth which crawled creamily down his cheeks, piling itself alongside his neck and ears. A bullet had clipped a groove in his skull above the temple. From this, the brain protruded in bosses, dropping off in flakes and strings. Well, um... That's there's nothing like that in De Forest. No, it doesn't get any more real than that, does it? No. Now, why why does Beers choose to confront the reader with something as as graphic as that? Well, I I think, and again, you know, we're back to the question of De Forest and Beers having a different sense in a certain way of what is real. I mean, they you know simply they perceived reality in somewhat different ways. Uh, what's instructive. Uh, Let's see, that's page 76 and 77, right? That's yeah. Correct. If I'm remembering, you know, if we compare what DeForest says of his first sight of a wounded man, which is right there as well, where he says he sees a man, his knee crushed by a shot, his torn trousers soaked with a dirty crimson, his face a ghastly yellow, his eyes looking the agony of death, right? I mean, that, that's grim enough that DeForest is giving us, but it's, it's nothing, as you say, like what Bierce gives. Now, you know, DeForest's next statement there is, I was, I, you know, I'm in charge of a group of men, I'm an officer, I'm afraid my men are going to look at this and be discouraged by it or be frightened by it, and so I called their attention to something uh, off in another direction so that they wouldn't see it. What, you know, what DeForest is thinking of there, and this is what he says is the experience of war for an officer, which is his perspective, uh, that I have a responsibility to, to master my own horror at a site like this so that I can keep my men from from being paralyzed by horror or something like that. Bierce seems to now you know, Bierce has his responsibilities to his men, but he simply is transfixed by that site. 
and as is the, the reader when they come across it. We're going to have to take another short break. We'll come back in just a few moments with Michael W. Schaefer, author of Just What War Is, The Civil War Writings of DeForest and Bierce, on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> 